Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Jim Van Allen, retired detective sergeant with the Behavioral Science Unit and criminal profiler, with the OPP on the investigation into Schmigelski and McLeod. Also on that same issue, Paula Todd, journalist, lawyer, professor, and investigator, the author of Finding Carla, the book on discovering the whereabouts of child serial killer Carla Homolka. Lisa Raitt, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada on the Liberals voting 5-4 to four in parliamentary committees to refuse investigations into actions by the Prime Minister's Office, Dee Gallant, young woman in Duncan, British Columbia, who faced a cougar on a walking path and played some Metallica for the cougar. We'll find out what happened. And Trish Newport is the lead Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, coordinator in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as the Ebola virus has become an international public health emergency. With the Schmigelski and McLeod story and the continued pursuit of these two individuals charged with one murder suspected of two others, and where do we stand and what's likely to go forward? Jim Van Allen is a retired detective sergeant with the Behavioral Science Unit and criminal profiler with the Ontario Provincial Police, now with Investigative Solutions Network. And uh, Jim, thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me, Roy. Did you have a sense last weekend that by the time today rolled around, we'd be a lot further forward in this case than we are? Uh, I originally speculated it could take up to about two weeks. Um, you know, it, it's entirely speculative. Um, I, I am surprised it has gone on this long, and, and it appears to be um, going with no end in sight. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that, but... Um, you know, these, these these guys are certainly a little luckier than some have been in, in previous manhunts. Are you reasonably sure that they're still alive? Is is there something about this entire situation which persuades you they're not dead, as many have speculated? Um, yeah, I, I th personally, I think there's a lower probability that they're still in Manitoba or around the, uh, the Gillam area because of the fact that there was the uh, burned SUV in the area. Um, logically, um, I question why they would burn uh, their transportation if they didn't have other transportation lined up and ready to go. We've got a general movement heading east. They're running away uh, from some very serious crimes in B.C., and that uh, seems to propel them uh, in an eastward direction. Uh, they're they're staying to the north in uh, more uh, sparsely traveled uh, areas, and we have unconfirmed, but we still have um, some sightings uh, in Ontario that give some merit 
to the possibility that they may have, in fact, entered Ontario. Now, what is it that make police look at one particular tip with more serious consideration than another? Uh, assuming that the physical description would be what most people know about them, what makes one tip more credible than another? Well, um, there could be a number of things. There could be uh, physical evidence associated with that. There could be corroborating witness uh, descriptions that support a witness. Um, there there might be an, uh, an injury that was caused in this uh, interaction between uh, the person and the bad guys that, that suggests that the story is true. His uh, overall presentation to the police might suggest he's a very credible witness. Jim, what's the likelihood, if, if you, you look at the, the two of them, you're the, the profiler, you look at these two individuals, you see what they have done, where they've been cited, what's the likelihood they're getting assistance, perhaps from someone, pre-planned assistance or spontaneous help from people who didn't know who they are? Oh, I think that's almost negligible. Uh, it, it's, it's never been... Uh, the fact that these people are supported by uh, many others when they go on these uh, cross-country uh, manhunts, they're uh, they're fending for themselves. They're a, uh, a duo team just getting by, probably with minor thefts, uh, thefts of gas. Certainly, they're they're going through a lot of gas. Probably theft of license plates, refreshing the appearance of their car, making them harder to trace, and uh, and that's what. I see the difference in this particular situation to most other manhunts is uh, these, these guys are more low-key, and uh, it, it appears they're more focused on escaping and flying under the radar right now, um, as opposed to some that uh, engage in very frequent uh, high-violent crimes and seem to uh, get involved in more frequent encounters with police. They're... Uh, they're um, being a little bit uh, cooler right now and uh, harder to detect. And these manhunts, they're like trying to hit a moving target. But in this case, you don't have a very clearly defined target. I don't know whether it was you who told me this or somebody else who said to me earlier in the week on the phone, and, and I was wondering why they hadn't been apprehended already. And someone said to me, might have been you, that it's hard enough to find people who want to be found in the bush Never mind people who don't. Yeah, I was a uh, search master in the Sudbury District for the OPP uh, back in the 80s, and we conducted a number of uh, outdoor searches for lost people in a variety of circumstances, from elderly to lost hikers, lost hunters, children, things of this nature. And it's very difficult sometimes to find anybody in uh, a heavy bush uh, environment. Oh that even wants to be found for guys that are trying to evade and escape it becomes very very difficult now they they might be traveling uh, sometimes at night and that goes in their favor with lack of patrols uh, on some of these highways but uh, um, yeah so far they've been uh, successful in evading uh, police as the days go by, one day becomes the next becomes the next becomes the next police are interacting with one another receiving tips Doing background, further background checks, of course, I, I imagine, is a more composite picture of who they are, who they really are, emerging, and will that help predict what their next moves are going to be? 
un- unfortunately not. I mean, we, a lot is known about these types of criminals that commit these types of murders and then go on a, a crime spree. And it helps us to understand who they are and what they've done. But investigatively, it doesn't help you uh, catch them, doesn't help you predict what they're they're going to do next. Just hold on, please, Jim. I want to talk to you some more. Jim Van Allen is my guest, retired detective sergeant with the Behavioral Science Unit and a criminal profiler with the Ontario Provincial Police, now with Investigative Solutions Network. And we'll talk more with uh, with Mr. Van Allen about Schmigelski and McLeod and what's likely to happen next. My guest is Jim Van Allen, retired detective sergeant with the Behavioral Science Unit and criminal profiler with the Ontario Provincial Police, now with Investigative Solutions Network. Interesting uh, email I just received, Jim. Don't forget the certainty. Of, this is from Frank in Ancaster, Ontario. Don't forget the certainty of someone truly citing them for police to authenticate. How about a simple mobile phone photo of them? Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be helpful. There's no yeah. doubt about that. But uh, I'm thinking of that construction worker in the campus casing area that had uh, alleges, allegedly had a gun pointed at him. That's probably not the time to no, take no. out a cell phone and take a picture of somebody under those circumstances. But if you're at a bit of a distance and you think it's them. Hey, that would certainly uh, go a long way, I'm sure, to um, uh, helping police verify particular sighting and then setting up quickly because that's what re- is required at this point to uh, respond quickly, uh, restrict uh, travel, set up some static patrol points, maybe roadblocks, get a canine ready, get a uh, helicopter in the air, that type of thing, and then uh, hopefully they can contain them. Now, we know we know where they were in British Columbia. That's where they're from. That's where they committed the murders or are alleged to have and have been charged with. We, we know they were in Saskatchewan. We know they were in Manitoba. There's talk about them being in the province of Ontario. That's a lot of traveling for two individuals who are the subject of a nationwide police manhunt. Are there things that you would have done differently if you've been in charge of the police investigation of these two, in charge of the pursuit and the manhunt? Are there things you would have set up a little bit differently than may have been done? No, absolutely not. Um, you, it, it, I'm not sure if it will ever be determined if the search efforts in Gillum uh, began after they slipped out or not. But the, I, I say that the RCMP were obligated to get in there and search for any uh, additional evidence, uh, attempt to apprehend them, uh, look for any other crimes that might have been committed or information that would assist the uh, ongoing manhunt. Um, if they slipped out, that was just a, a lot of bad luck, but I think the RCMP did what they had to do. Um, there was no, like like I say, they're, they're really hard to predict. They seem to be moving in an eastern um, direction. Uh, hard for uh, Ontario to predict exactly what's going to happen or putting up roadblocks uh, in a, a speculative manner on the Trans-Canada Highway. That's not really uh, reasonable under these circumstances, but uh, um, I, I think police have to respond to uh, and investigate the reports from the public. And, and however this ends, I think it'll be a result of uh, police cooperation. How do you informed, think? Sorry. Informed, informed by a vigilant uh, public. How do you suspect it's going to end? 
Uh, I don't think it's going to end well. These things never end well. Uh, one of the individuals reportedly has been making homicidal, suicidal comments since age 13. That, that tells you what he's thinking. If he's got much of a plan, that sort of gives you a sketch as to what his plan might look like. Uh, they're armed. They're desperate. They're dangerous. Um, whether they have a suicidal component or it's a suicide by cop, component uh, it it could be that but uh hopefully uh the police will get in quick hopefully they'll give up and they'll be apprehended and and brought to justice and you're expecting that to happen within a reasonable period of time well i, I guess would, right now would be a reasonable period of time yeah they they've been going a long period of time and um there could very well be crimes uh yet that have not been discovered or attributed to them and um uh as these things are reported to the police and investigated. Hopefully a, a picture will um, uh, become more clear and lead to their apprehension. What questions do you want answered? What, 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 what would you do? What do you want to see done? Uh, well, I, uh, everything that's being done right now, <coughs> excuse me, I think is being done. And the police are uh, communicating with the public and they're warning the public and they're accepting uh, Clue, uh, re, um, reports and looking into them, investigating them. Eventually, one of those is going to lead to the uh, their location, and then it'll be a, a quick matter of uh, mobilizing quickly, uh, getting in and containing them, and uh, going for an apprehension. But you, uh, as you just said, you're you're not r- discounting the possibility, perhaps even the likelihood, of more and significant violence. Uh, there could very well be. I mean, uh, they've proven what they're capable of. Uh, if they decide they want to switch vehicles, it could be a, an abduction. It could be a high uh, carjacking. It could be uh, just a, uh, a flat-out murder. Uh, and uh, I think that's a very real possibility. How do they see themselves? Uh, they see themselves as a couple of uh, uh, bad guy heroes on the run. I mean, they're... Uh, they're thrill killers. There's a big excitement component to what's going on, and they derive a lot of personal satisfaction with the um, commission of murders, with probably their ongoing escape and then getting away from the law, running away from the law. They're, they're thinking they're pretty um, hot right now. They likely know that they're uh, you know, big news uh, right across the country, and this is going to feed into their uh, personalities, but I... I would strongly believe that there's one far dominant personality in this duo, and one's a, one's a more passive follower, and uh, which is typically what you see. And and one guy's calling the shots, and he'll probably be making the majority of um, decisions that will define how this uh, outcome looks. Interesting, you say that because this is something we talked about last weekend as well. One of them would be the dominant one; the other one would be more the follower. But what are the chances, given the stresses, because they're, they're certainly living under a certain amount of, or, or they're living under significant stress, what are the chances of them turning on each other? I think uh, I think that's low, because they've been uh, childhood friends uh, uh, since very, very early, and they've stuck together, and they've hung out, and uh, I think they're uh, codependent on each other, and um, uh, they've made... Uh, a declaration by going on this crime spree, and it's uh, uh, um, 
uh, what I call a, a real unholy alliance between these two guys, and I, I think they'll stick it out till the end. All right. Jim, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Uh, Jim Van Allen, retired detective sergeant with the Behavioral Science Unit, also a criminal profiler with the Ontario Provincial Police, now with Investigative Solutions Network. This whole story about Schmigelski and McLeod not only has the focus and the complete attention of this country, but it's such a huge international story. I've been receiving emails from people I know in in the UK and other parts of the world asking, you know, what's going on with this? Uh, Could you do an interview with us? And I tell them I'm not the right person, and I put them onto somebody I think would be a a good person for them to interview. But it's, it's really caught the attention of much of the world. And uh, I got to thinking about who I wanted to speak with today. And Paula Todd's name was one of the first. Journalist, lawyer, professor at Seneca College, investigator. Uh, She tracked down Carla Homolka, the serial child killer and Paul Bernardo's ex-spouse and crime partner. Wrote uh, the book Finding Carla. Uh, She's a digital media expert who wrote Extreme Mean about online abuse. And Paula Todd joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Good to talk to you again, Paula. And uh, this is is another one of these cases where I'm sure your interest has been really whetted about Schmigelski and and McLeod and what they've done. Thanks for joining us. And what specifically, what stands out most to you? What's the answer, the question you want most answered? The question I want most answered is what do we need to do to convince these two young men to turn themselves in? They need legal assistance and they obviously need medical assistance. They are, every minute that they are on the run, they are digging themselves into a deeper, deeper legal hole. We, we know from listening to, to Breyer's father that there are mental health issues, that there are serious emotional problems, and uh, to ask that, you know, Two people who have now allegedly involved themselves in catastrophic tragedies. Uh, my question is to both of them: What do you need to to turn yourself in? I haven't heard that asked. Maybe it has been asked, but I haven't heard it asked. And I think it's a, I think it's a very good question. I think partly you haven't heard it asked because, as is the case when you live in a world where entertainment and news sometimes blur. Uh, there is a false romanticism, of course, about criminals. And as somebody who's spent, you know, I, I'm the only journalist in the world to have spent an hour uh, with Carla Homolka, a serial killer who, of course, kidnapped and sexually tortured and, and helped kill three young teenagers, including her sister. And I don't say that with any kind of bravado. I say I've sat with her. I've seen into her eyes. Uh, I know that these people are are human on one level. Uh, they're scared, they're terrified, and more than anything, they don't want to be caught. But we unfortunately see two guys on the run, and are, are you know, or, or, or a young woman who you know is hanging out with a psychopath, and all of a sudden Hollywood seems to step in, and you've got some really bad actors online who are spreading false information because they can't separate the reality of these desperate men and what they're alleged to have done, which is horrific, and they can't separate it from just being entertained. And that's part of the reason we're having trouble catching them because of the false information that's being uh, trafficked online. What are you seeing, uh, 
online that mostly that troubles you most? I understand. I mean, I've spent a long time. I was an early adapter to the Internet, and I've written about it, and I'm in the process of actually writing a Ph.D. about it. I've, I've studied the Internet a long time. I really get it. It is a great thing. It is a wonderful place to go. You can learn anything. You can meet anybody. You can be endlessly entertained. I'm an insomniac. But the sadness for me uh, that I see online is that people, uh, some people are using the Internet really responsibly as the magnificent communication device it is, and other people uh, are simply using it to have fun with this crime as if it's a video game. And uh, what I'm seeing, unfortunately, are two things. One, people who are uh, unnecessarily critical of the police Finding people who don't want to be found, who have Internet communication and who are desperate not to be found is not an easy job in a country as vast as Canada. So the people who are spending you know, their lives, wasting their time criticizing the police is ridiculous. If you feel that you know, concerned about the situation, then go out and help. I mean, there are ways to help online, and there's certainly ways to be a more responsible voice online. And the other thing is just genuine fear. My heart goes out to people. I'm... I'm not going to say where I am, but I will tell you I'm currently in the area that I know for sure the OPP is looking. And it's just an absolute coincidence that I'm here. And so people are scared and they're right to be scared. And the police are correct to warn people. So, you know, anybody who thinks that this is just fun, I mean, I understand the international notoriety, of course, because it's this, again, this false romanticism, so, you know, and we are forgetting the victims. Uh, and that's really where our attention should be, helping the families of the victims and finding a way to make it safe for Cam and Breyer to come home so that they can end the damage they're doing to the world and to themselves. What are police telling the, um, I won't ask you where you are, but what are police telling the people in the area where you are about these two and the possibility or, yeah, the possibility that, or at least to keep your eyes open? It's the same advice that a police, I think, of responsibly giving across the country. I mean, you know, I, I, the police can't win. And I, I, in my life, you know, I've been a Toronto Star reporter and a, and a CTV legal uh, analyst. You know, I, I, I'm not a suck-up to the police. But I'll tell you, they simply can't win. When they don't and warn us what's going on, they face, you know, lawsuits and anger. And right now what they're doing is they are warning people to be alert. And what that means is that if you're driving alone and you have a car, you have to think the way a criminal does, you know, or an alleged criminal, I should say. That's important, too. These people are innocent unless they are proved guilty. Uh, you know, kids on the run are looking for money. They're looking for a car. They may be looking for drugs. They're definitely looking for Internet hookups and electricity. Uh, so if you are anywhere around that sort of stuff, the police are simply warning you to be vigilant. You know, if you're driving your car and you're on your own, you're walking somewhere that, you know, is, is, is not well populated, be really careful because there are, you know, there's always people out there looking to do harm. But right now we've got two desperate young on the run. Take us back to your, uh, to your conversation with uh, Carla Homolka. And uh, what she said to you and what you got from her, maybe as much as, I, I don't know, Paula, maybe you got as much from what she didn't say as what she did say. But, well, uh, but, but how, do, how, does, how does that, how does, there must be, I'm looking for a tie-in between her violence and, and her brutality and the alleged violence and brutality of Schmigelski and McLeod. 
What an interesting question. I know I miss you, Roy. You're <laughs> such a great journalist. I'd just like to first say that I didn't try to find Carla Molka out of any kind of thrill-seeking or, you know, journalism kudos. Um, she had disappeared from Canada, had been gone for five years, and I didn't give her a thought. But what happened is I realized that uh, her, the fact that she received only 12 years for the dire crimes, uh, the fact that, you know, Canadians were so angry about it, they were still using some of that anger uh, in the sentencing of other people. Uh, and that as a lawyer, you know, you're not supposed to do that. People are supposed to do the time for their crime, not for somebody else's. And when I began to investigate, I realized that there were a few slender clues that she might actually be putting herself into an environment with young people again, which is something that the parole officers and the courts were very, very worried about. And so I decided to try to track her down. I had no idea at the time that so many journalists had been trying to do that. I think, I mean, you know, spending an hour with a, an alleged psychopath, <laughs> there were so many psychiatrists. Some think that she is a psychopath, others don't. I'm perfectly content to say that when you assist in the kidnap, torture, and murder of three young teens, including siblings, you know, mentally ill is just fine with me. Uh, what did I learn from her? I've learned that there's nothing romantic about criminals and that we really need to end our fixation and our sense that what's happening online in some cases is people are, you know, cheering Cam and Breyer on, they're registering false sightings, uh, and the criminals, alleged criminals may be doing it too, but uh, what I learned from sitting with her in that living room is there is, there was a vacuity, there's a hole in her morality, in her emotional system. Uh, when we talked about, like, alluding to the past and these horrible things she'd done, I mean, not a wrinkle of, of consciousness of it, not a sense of responsibility. She had an op- We talked for an hour. She had an opportunity, many opportunities, to tell me how sorry she was or, you know, to be, to be sad. She's never, ever, ever expressed it. And so I think the only thing I can just take away, and I don't want to add to the fear-mongering, is this. Uh, we have a compassionate justice system, and justice will be done for these young men, if, particularly if they turn themselves in. But when you've got people with these kinds of mental illnesses, people who are desperate and who are on the run, our takeaway is you can't be too vigilant. And so that doesn't mean getting scared, but it does mean, you know, knowing where everybody is. If you go, don't, don't go alone to strange places until they're caught. Uh, and that's what the police are saying, and um, the rest of us can just assist the police by getting off social media, by stop pretending this is a video game, and by realizing that we may have two very, very sick individuals out there who need everybody's help. Paula, please hold on. We'll come back with uh, Paula Todd, journalist, professor at Seneca University. She's a uh, college. She's an investigator, a lawyer, the author, of course, of Finding Carla. And uh, it was Paula Todd who found Carla. So many people globally wanted to know where she was, and and Paula found her and sat down, as you've been hearing, and spoke with her for an hour. Um, Convicted serial child killer. So we'll continue with uh, Paula Todd's thoughts and concerns about the state of the Schmigelski and McLeod manhunt. Have some more questions for her. We'll come back right after this. Condolences, sincere condolences to the family and friends and colleagues of Deepak O'Brien, conservative member of parliament who died today 
uh, just 69 years of age, and had been battling cancer for a relatively short period of time. It was very aggressive. So our, our condolences to uh, Mr. O'Brien's family, friends, and colleagues. Back with uh, Paula Todd, and uh, lawyer and journalist, professor, investigator, the author of Finding Carla. Can't imagine what it was like to sit with her for for an hour under the circumstances you uh, you did, Paula, because you you more or less just walked in on her. She didn't know you were coming, right? No, she didn't know I was coming. Uh, Carla uh, Homolka has made it clear to the media, even during her trial, that she uh, holds them in contempt and prided herself actually on never uh, staying abreast of current affairs or watching the news, which was helpful to me in the end because I tracked her down to um, to Guadeloupe, one of the islands in the, in the in the French protectorate, and she I I've been on I had been on television at that point for about twenty years, and she, she didn't recognize me, which was a great good fortune. It doesn't it didn't happen very often. Uh, it was very frightening. Uh, I, I, I went to see her. I tried to find her. I was actually on a holiday, and I went to try to find her because I was deeply concerned that she may have been able to disappear into a new society and begin to, uh, you, you know, start to associate with young children uh, and, you know, vulnerable young women who had no way, perhaps, of knowing what her background was. As a lawyer, I completely subscribe to the notion that you you are entitled to a second chance, but I think it is incredibly naive and just a bit precious to say that somebody with uh, mental illnesses as serious perhaps as psychopathy uh, that can just let them go, that everything will be fine. I think we're, we're confusing two, two ideas there. So my goal was to, to find out whether she, in fact, uh, was uh, associating uh, by you know doing things like teaching uh, with with these young women that the court had been so concerned about uh, and and the information that I did come away with is that in fact she was uh, associating with young women and and interestingly now that she's come back to Montreal of course we know that uh, one of the odd odd things she did is she she started to hang out at, at her she, she has three uh, three biological children now uh, with the, she's married to the brother of her Canadian lawyer and uh, she has these three children. She helped, you know, to end the lives of three. And now she has three. And, and you would think that somebody would just stay at home and, and, uh, and be quiet and repent and perhaps try to help, uh, you know, victims. Uh, instead, she started to make herself quite friendly with the children uh, on the playground at her children's school. And as and anybody who's been following the case knows, uh, in, in the end, that created a huge controversy because, of course, parents have the right to know whether... Uh, a serial killer is, is, you know, babysitting or running around with their children. So it was scary being there, but like all journalism, and Roy, you know this, when you feel like you're doing something that could matter to other people that could help protect them, you really don't think about fear at the time. I mean, you think about it later, but I I just felt that I had a mission and and, and I had a chance to to accomplish it, and, and so I did it. Well, and you did it, and you did everyone a service by finding her, uh, Asking her, sitting down with her, questioning her, and writing the book that you did. Now, there's something you said at the beginning of our conversation. We're talking about the online activity and the uh, interest in the Schmigelski and McLeod case. The um, uh, Some of it is appropriate and some of it not. I was just thinking back to when Paul Bernardo was on trial. There wasn't, uh, hmm. we, there wasn't we didn't have the Internet like we do today. And do you remember that there were massive lineups at the border 
from Canada and uh, particularly southern Ontario and, and western New York because what was being said in court, there was a publication ban put forward by the Canadian judge. And so Canadians were crossing the border in droves to go to Buffalo and buy the Buffalo News and other newspapers to find out what was going on in the trial because the Americans didn't have that restriction. There is, an, there is a never-ending fascination with, with serious and significant crime. This is no different. Um, and, and we all have an obligation to do the, all we can to bring this thing, this situation to a close. As you said, be vigilant, keep your eyes open, see something that you believe you should report, uh, do it. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I, I'm all, I always err on the side of trying to see the human in us humans. I think there's a sort of a natural tendency for people to be really curious about extreme behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and first, just first instance, we want to protect ourselves, right? And I think there's, I think there's something scary, and particularly about the, the Homolka and Bernardo uh, serial killings. They, they presented themselves as this Barbie doll couple. I mean, they were, they were attractive, blonde, shiny, young people who seemed to have the future ahead of them. And I, and I think when they turned out to be this lethal, horrific, uh, you know, two, two criminals, you know, it just reminds people that you never know. And so I do think that part of our fascination with crime is a protective instinct. Our problem is when, uh, you know, and the Internet's been helpful. The Internet did not cause this, but the Internet does help blur reality. Right, and right, fiction. very much so, yeah. And we need to be careful. And, we're the, you know, and we, we see it all the time. You're absolutely yep. right. It's not just now. No. But we do need to be careful. Give yourself a shake, everybody. It's not a video game. It is not. And uh, I'm only saying this because it relates to what you just said. And I only have a few seconds. I was asked by Debbie Mahaffey to be the moderator for the memorial service for Kristen and for Leslie. And in that church on that Sunday afternoon in Burlington, Ontario, it was one of the longest three hours of anyone's life and, and, you, and you understood, as the roll call of victims went forward, what a horrific reality does occur when the most evil among us do the most evil. Paula, thank you so much. Great talking to you again. You too, Roy, and thank you for that thought, because we should be focusing okay. on the victims right now. Help them. Thank you. Paula Todd on The Roy Green Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Issue of S&C Leblanc and... We all remember, right? Yeah, we do. About the interference by the PMO and trying to persuade or push or nudge or bully the then Attorney General to intercede with the independent prosecutors so that no criminal charges were laid against SNC-Lavalin. And, of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould was shut down. Boom. No. She appeared once before the Justice Committee, and that was it. That was it. She wanted to come back. She had more to say because Gerald Butts had been there a couple of times, right? Yeah. Michael Wernick had been there, the former clerk of the Privy Council. And then Jody Wilson-Raybould wanted to come back and say more, but five to four was the vote by the liberal members of the committee to shut it down. It wasn't going to happen. This is this five to four thing is 
is happening quite consistently. Just a couple of days ago, the Foreign Affairs Committee wanted to have an investigation about two former Canadian ambassadors being interfered with by the federal government, by uh, the liberals, as far as speaking their minds freely on what was going on in China and expressing their thoughts and views. And I can't do that because of an election coming up. No, no, can't do that. There, you, 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 you check this out with, with us first before you... Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And then five to four, the liberals voted down the option of, a, of an investigation into that. I want to talk to uh, Lisa Raitt about that, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. She joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ms. Raitt, before I do anything else, condolences to you and everyone in the party and uh, all the friends and colleagues of Deepak O'Brien. Oh, thanks, Roy. It's it's a really hard day. I mean, Deepak, he was dean of our caucus and much beloved. And boy, he made me laugh all the time. And I just can't believe that I'm not going to see him again. I just, um, I'm thinking of his family and I'm thinking of everybody who worked for him. But uh, it's, a, it's a bad day for us. And it was a very sudden uh, onset mm-hmm. of, of cancer, wasn't it, for him? It was. I mean, Deepak and I, before we left um, the house in June, you know, we talked about our campaigns and and he said, I'll come out and help you and Milton, Lisa, I have lots of friends. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that I'd be picking up the phone and getting some advice from him during the campaign. And, and uh, I didn't think that we'd have, we'd lose him. We just we just never know. So, again, condolences yeah. to you and uh, you. everyone in the caucus, all his friends and colleagues, and, of course, his family. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about uh, what's going on uh, inside our you know, inside our parliament. I'm, I find it disturbing that we have these five to four votes that are happening consistently and repeatedly at the committee level when there's an investigation called for uh, into the actions of either the prime minister, the PMO, or the federal government, which is sometimes one and the same. And most recently, it was the Foreign Affairs Committee about the ambassadors being told, don't speak out on China unless you check it out with us first. Uh, there was another one. I've forgotten which one it is. And then it was you and the Justice Committee on the yeah. issue of Jody Wilson-Raybould, who's still not allowed to speak, right? Exactly. Actually, the one that you're referring that you can't remember, because there have been many of them, was one that happened um, a week ago. And that, again, was Justice Committee. We were asking questions of the Minister of Justice and Kim Campbell in her role as the chair of the, the committee that was picking the next Supreme Court justice. And we were right, trying right, to get right, to yeah. the bottom. We're trying to get to the bottom of that leak of information which was given uh, about a former applicant for a Supreme Court justice position because the attempt was of course to make Jody Wilson Raybould look bad. And you know, I asked um, I asked the former Prime Minister whether or not she thought that the leak came from her committee and she said absolutely not. And um, she said, but, you know, if the parliamentarians are concerned about it, they should investigate. Well, I agreed with her and moved the motion. And the liberals, not only did they vote it down five to four, they didn't even debate it. Not a single one of them made any representations as to why they were going to vote against having an investigation into that leak of information in the Supreme Court process. Now, I have to ask you, I have to ask you this. Uh, the Justice Committee issue with Jody Wilson-Raybould, I think most of us remember very well. For some people, it appears the SNC lifeline issue may have slipped off their personal radar. I can't afford that to happen because it was a significant aspect or a significant look inside the leadership of the Liberal Party and the PMO. However, it is what it is. 
Um, but are these calls for investigation, are they, as some are suggesting, simply the opposition being the opposition, try to take down the government months before the uh, federal election, or is there a really relevant and significant case to be made for an investigation? Whenever we ask for an investigation to happen, we are trying to get to the witnesses that are part of the discussion. And we don't do it lightly because there always has to be some kind of factor or some kind of event that causes you to act for it. In the case of Jody Wilson-Raybould, we, we asked for an investigation. And at first, they shut down the meeting. And then secondly, they said no. And then finally, as this whole sordid tale unwound itself, they then agreed that they were going to do an investigation, but on a very narrow topic, because they're trying to manage the issue at that point. Well, we saw, Canadians saw, uh, as you said, a glimpse into how this um, government uh, operates by the test through the testimony of Jody Wilson-Raybould. We still haven't heard from Jane Philpott um, and what no, happened with haven't. her and why she left. No, we haven't heard from her. They didn't want to call her. And the last part is, We've never heard from any of the people who were specifically named as being the ones that carried out the orders of the PMO to put the pressure on Jody Wilson-Raybould. We never got to talk to them at all. They were, they were absolutely protected by, um, by those Liberal MPs sitting on the Justice Committee. Now, the Liberal MPs on the Justice Committee and the other committees say they're not voting at the behest of the Prime Minister or the PMO. They're doing it simply because it's the principal thing for them to do. The big case of groupthink. I mean, when nobody is actually giving any kind of commentary as to why they're voting against having an investigation uh, in order to, you know, at least justify their vote, and then th- obviously they've had, they've already had a conversation on which way it's going to go, and they're yeah. protecting the party. They're protecting the party, and it's the same thing that we hear over and over again from the liberals every time a scandal is uncovered. It's usually because they were worried about an election coming. And here we are close to an election, so they're not going to have any investigations. Okay, Ms. Wright, I tweeted something two days ago. And I tweeted it because I've been receiving emails from from listeners who are asking me, I don't have the answers, uh, asking me why Andrew Scheer has a, not the profile that he should have at this time with Canadians. These are the email questions that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. And is Mr. Scheer sufficiently uh, engaged in in the fight to win the election and and is he taking on the liberals and mr trudeau with a kind of uh with a kind of determination public determination that he should yeah um i appreciate the questions i'm glad that we're we're talking uh, about the leader of the opposition because he's the one that has the plan that is going to make sure that we we end up having a prosperous country again, one that is accountable and ethical as compared to what we have now. But to your point on on the tone that Andrew's adopted, we've always said that we're going to run a positive campaign, positive conservative campaign. And right now it just seems that it's Mr. Trudeau who continuously tries to seek to divide and, and cause, um, you know, um, terrible things to be said about certain parts of, uh, of our party. But here's the thing. Andrew's always been very firm. I work with him closely. I, I see the leadership in him, and, and I know that Canadians will see it as well. Um, but there is a fine line. When you're dealing with the public, Roy, there is a fine line between being assertive and then being called aggressive and then just being a jerk. And you've got to be able to make sure that people understand where you're coming from and what your point of view is. Andrew's a, an honest guy. 
He wants what's best for the country. He's a hard worker, and he's got a great vision, and he's going to continue to communicate it. And when pushed, he'll push back. And we'll continue to do that. When we're pushed as conservatives, we will push back. And we're not going to put up with the nonsense that's being thrown at us right now. But you understand as well as I do, probably better, the perception becomes reality for people. And you can't allow that perception to become the reality. Uh, If people feel like, I want to see more from Andrew Scheer than I'm seeing from him, because Trudeau seems to be just throwing all the punches right now. That's basically the, th- and I understand what you're saying, mm-hmm. but uh, but I'm not going to run away from asking you a question that my listeners are asking me. Oh, and ab- yeah, bring on the questions. I'm fine with that, Roy. Uh, the prime minister is using taxpayer dollars to start his campaign, and he's flying all around the country, and everywhere he goes, he's got the press pool with him, and therefore he's going to have opportunities. Andrew communicated, I think, very clearly when, um, most recently, when the Prime Minister is saying these ridiculous things about what Conservatives will or will not do with respect to health care in the country, he wrote a letter to all the Premiers and clearly laid out the fact that the commitment is that it's the same or better than what the Liberals currently are doing on health care and okay. putting that issue to bed. So we're going to continue to push back in, in the way that we can. And Andrew is is very much a strong leader. I see it. Other Canadians are going to see it as well. But you can't be... Um, you can't just become that kind of a bully to, to push back hard because people will begin to think that uh, that you're a jerk. And the, the jerk right now, quite frankly, is um, is the self-centered prime minister. Well, you could have avoided my question, and you didn't. I told you that I was going to ask you this. I sent you an email yeah. this morning. I like to be. I don't ambush people. Yeah. I, I let people know. I let guests know if I have a question that's out of the mainstream of what I was going to ask. I'll let you know. I'll let guests know roughly where I'm going with things. And you you, 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 you immediately emailed back, yep, no problem with that. So I appreciate it. Ms. Raid, yeah. always good talking to you. As always, Roy, great to talk to you. Thanks. Lisa Raid, the Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. So the Cougar didn't like that, huh? Cougar didn't want to uh, tackle Metallica. Cougar said, uh, I'm out of here. I'm gone. Thank you very much. I had maybe had other intentions, but hearing uh, Metallica, I'm I'm checking out. I'm I'm going. I'm going. I'm gone now. What this is all about, just in case you haven't heard, is a story that happened uh, near Duncan, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island. I'll just read a couple of lines uh, written by Adam Wallace, national online journalist, entertainment for Global News. A Vancouver Island resident is thanking the guys from Metallica for saving her life after she fended off a wild cougar with their 1991 song, Don't Tread on Me. On Tuesday, July 23rd, Dee Gallant, the Vancouver Island resident, and her eight-year-old husky retriever Murphy went to a local logging trail just outside of Duncan for their regular evening walk. And Dee, what happened? <laughs> well, that's pretty much what happened. I was out for my evening walk, and uh, I just felt like something was watching me. And it was kind of dusk time, so you know, from time to time, you uh, <laughs> you see creatures at that time of night. So I looked over to my right, and there he was, standing there, staring at me. And and so I mean, you're out there with the dog. The dog's not aware of the cougar. Uh, no, and- he. He didn't notice him, um, which I think is probably for the best, but um, the cougar was coming towards me and he was doing that sort of stalking walk that they do where they look very interested in you. And uh, so I said, you know, hey, you stop. And then he stopped. And then I thought, well, 
I could probably record him. He's far enough away that I could maybe get some video footage. So that's when I started recording him. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, how are you feeling about that? You're you're not unfamiliar with the area. You know there is wildlife there, but now you're facing uh, a wild animal who's showing interest in you, right? This is this isn't kitty looking for a tummy scratch. This is a <laughs> <laughs> No, I did tell him he was a bad kitty, but he uh he just uh he looked pretty intense. So, I I wasn't nervous at first. I thought my first thought honestly was, wow, this is so cool, a cougar. <laughs> Uh, am I ever lucky, you know, like that? And then the longer it went on, the more I thought, I might be in danger here. You know, he's not really backing down. He stopped coming forward, but he also didn't leave. So I started thinking, maybe maybe I should change tactics. <laughs> and uh, and he did eventually start to move toward you, didn't he? Uh, yeah, well, he was at first coming towards me, yeah. And then once once I told him to stop, he stopped in place, and then he didn't move a muscle. Isn't that interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. He just stared right at me, and I think that's why my dog didn't notice him. Right. And I think it's good that my dog didn't notice him, because if Murphy had seen him, he would have put on a great big display, and I think the kitty probably would have <laughs> either attacked or, you know, it could have could have gone either way. I like the way you call him the kitty. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so did Murphy ever really notice him? Um, nope, no. And actually, when I was saying uh, bad kitty and and you know, go on, get out of here and all that stuff. He actually um, started to uh, look around behind me and he was like, who is she talking to? (laughs) (laughs) So now when does uh, Metallica enter the picture and how? (laughs) Uh, Well, Friday at work yesterday, um, I got a phone call from James Hatfield and he said that he had seen a post that I wanted to I wanted Metallica to know that they saved my life, and so he called up to tell me that he knew. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And, and, and what made you decide to let, let, the, let the kitty hear Metallica? <laughs> well, when he wasn't moving and, and my voice just wasn't cutting it, I thought, I'm going to, what's the most intimidating thing I have that I can, you know, do to him. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. thought I've got human-sounding things on my phone, and Metallica came to mind right away. And I actually was scrolling through my iTunes, wow. bypassing other songs until I found Don't Tread on Me, because I thought it was a perfect choice. <laughs> comes, It comes off aggressive right off the start. So. You know, that, that's really tremendous presence of mind. I, I, I think most people would have been trying to figure out how to get out of there, but if you try to run, they'll just, that's when they'll come after you, right? Well, yeah, and I, running never really came into my mind at all. What did come into my mind, and I've had people say, why didn't you pick up a rock or a stick? Because I've always heard, don't crouch down. Right. And I thought, I, I saw a big rock there, and I thought, should I throw a rock at it? And I thought, no, don't bend down. <laughs> just stand your ground. So I just uh, kept talking to them until I found the song I wanted, and I had to stop filming because it's in my phone, and, and then I put on the iTunes and held up my phone and just let them have it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm just trying, I'm just still back on the presence of mind, knowing what to do. And as, as, as he, I mean, as soon as he heard, uh, don't try to, I mean, did, did, did he just go right away? Was it like, okay, Instantly. fine, I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah, he just turned and skedaddled. He had had enough of that right away. He, he was scared right from the, right from the get-go. How did you feel? How did I how did you feel? Um, I mean, uh, and how are you feeling now? Um, well, it's pretty neat. It's exciting. Um, I I was at the time when he first left. I was shocked at the size of it when it turned sideways. Mm-hmm. I was uh, 
rethinking my theory on the fact that I could take him if I wanted to fight him, I thought, uh, yeah, I don't think I could have won because he was actually a lot bigger than I thought that when he was facing head on. And then uh, when he went off in the bush, my next thought was, "Uh uh-oh, now I can't see him. Where is he? (laughs) So I I carried on with my hike because I I wasn't that far into it. And um, But for the rest of the way, I had my phone very handy and uh, Metallica on deck. Well, I can only imagine what the walk home must have felt like. It was like, hey, how come it's so far home? How come it's taking yeah. so long, right? Uh, Murphy was wondering why I was talking so loud to him all the way home. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so I'm so glad nothing uh, untoward happened to you, and that you, you know, you you found the perfect song for the for the cat, and uh, you're you're fine. And Murphy's still trying to figure out what happened. <laughs> Our yeah, dog's exactly. great. Yeah. At, at this exact moment, he's trying to recover because we just uh, spent the night camping on a Gulf Island here, and uh, it was really rough coming back off the island, so he's a little shaken at the moment. Well, you're a brave person. <laughs> thank you well, so thank much. You. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing the story, and I'm so glad, and as is everybody listening, that you're fine and everything turned out well, and and, and now, the, now the cat's... He may have a different opinion when he sees when he sees somebody walking. Now I, I don't want to go see him because they'll play that song again. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he'll uh, he'll remember that uh, you know humans thank, are intimidating. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Dee. All the best to you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. From Duncan, British Columbia, uh, Dee Gallant, or maybe Gallant. I should I, I shouldn't presume on the pronunciation. I should have asked. Anyway, what a great story. Uh, it, it turned out great. Uh, how many people would have the presence of mind? To scroll through your music list as this cougar's eyeing you and starting to move toward you and is not showing any signs of heading off in the opposite direction. How many people would have the presence of mind to say, I'm going to play some song, some music, something off my phone that's going to maybe scare him and get him to leave? That's quite the story. And, you know, we've been hearing about that grizzly attack that uh, another British Columbia resident was almost killed a couple of days ago by uh, by a grizzly bear. I like stories that turn out well like that. And I'm, that cougar must be so confused. Standing by to join us uh, is Trish Newport from Medecins Sans Frontieres, Doctors Without Borders. And uh, Ms. Newport is the Ebola Activities Coordinator for MSF in the Dem- Democratic Republic of the Congo which is the primary site of the Ebola outbreak, and the World Health Organization has declared Ebola, the current outbreak, to be an international public health emergency. Uh, Ms. Newport, thank you very much for the time. It's tough to follow that last story, very difficult. But you're also facing a situation of great uh, great concern in, in the Congo. Can you tell us what, 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 the, what the situation is on the ground? It's extremely concerning, Roy. So... That Ebola outbreak has now been happening for more than one year. There have been over 2,700 cases, more than 1,700 deaths. But it's not just the numbers. It's really the characteristics that we're worried about. So every week, about 30% of those new cases are community deaths. So people that are staying in the community until they die, so there's a high chance they infect others. And about 40% of the new cases every week have never been identified before as people that were at risk of getting sick. So it means that we have no visibility over the epidemiological situation. Now, the case that happened in Goma last week is the perfect example of all of these problems. So that man in Goma 
No one knows where he was infected. So he had never been identified as someone at risk of having the disease. And because he didn't even know he was at risk, it meant that he stayed in the community for a very long time before he was identified. And because of that, there's a high chance that he infected other people. There's already two people that were infected from him that are now in the Ebola treatment center in Goma. But it's just, it's a perfect example of what a poor and bad situation there is right now and how concerning it is and how big the risk is that it can be spread to other areas. And the borders are an issue. Uh, the border with Rwanda now, is, Goma is right on the Rwandan border with the Democratic Republic of, of Congo. World Health Organization declaring it an international public health emergency. That has to be done. And we have about 30 seconds, uh, Trish. Is this, is this, does 2019 have the potential to be worse than the, the last one that we faced? You know what? We have some great tools now. We have a vaccine to use. We have experimental treatments. But unless we change our approach, unless we start working with the community and gaining their trust, um, we're going to end up with the same results in this really bad situation. If we want different results, we have to change what we're doing. MSF.org. MSF.org is the website. Trish Newport, thank you very much, and thanks for what you do. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, we'll do that again, I'm sure. Trish Newport, she's Canadian. She's from the, from the Yukon and the uh, coordinator for Ebola activities for the MSF in the uh, Democratic People's Republic of Congo. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 